0: Hi, I'm Morvin Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 14, Interview with Author Gail Z. Martin. This episode was originally recorded on April 9, 2009. In this episode, I interview accomplished author and podcaster Gail Z. Martin. Gail is the author of The Summoner. The Blood King, and Dark Haven in the Chronicles of the Necromancer series. Book 4, Dark Ladies Chosen, makes its international debut in early 2010. Gail discovered her passion for science fiction, fantasy, and ghost stories in elementary school. The first story she wrote at age five was about a vampire. Her favorite TV show as a preschooler was Dark Shadows. At age 14, she decided to become a writer. She enjoys attending science fiction fantasy conventions, renaissance fairs, and living history sites. Hi, Gail. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And now what part of the world are you in? You're in uh, North Carolina, is it? I'm in North Carolina in Charlotte. Uh Uh-huh. And this time of year, we're in uh, April, I bet it's um, actually warm down there. It is nice. Uh, spring
1: is already quite uh, well in hand. We've got leaves coming on the trees and flowers, and it's, it's really starting to green up, so it's, it's very pretty.
0: Well, I'm jealous because even though it was 61 today, I heard on the weather forecast that tomorrow we're having rain that may turn into snow showers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I am originally from up near Lake Erie, so I definitely understand late spring.
0: Ah, I was reading your bio and it brought up something where you both have an influence and now it makes sense. It probably aired at the same time, probably 4 p.m. when you were in school. Does the name Dark Shadows mean anything to you? Oh yeah, that was my absolutely favorite TV show.
1: But that actually was out before I was in school. So I was watching that as a preschooler. Oh my i was goodness. I was about you know four to four to six when that show was on now what my mother was thinking, letting me watch it, I don't know, <laughs> but I just remember being riveted by that show. I can still see some of the scenes uh in my memory really clearly and um I think it definitely played a big role in a lifelong love of ghost stories and vampires and anything to do with the paranormal.
0: Yes, definitely. I remember some thing that had, I think it had to do with Barnabas going back in time or something. Oh, yeah. But a Chinese hexagram on the door, and it was something about the knocked on the door or it opened some door or something and it had to do with the I Ching and just all these wonderfully esoteric and exotic things that I had <laughs> never heard of before.
1: Oh, it was, you know, it was a fun show and I know that if you watch it now and you look at it, just the special effects aren't as snazzy as they seem to be at the time and it seems a little campy, but man, I'll tell you what <laughs> A four year old I thought it was
0: pretty spiffy. Yeah, well that's funny, it sort of compares my husband watched um Doctor Who as a child. Oh, okay. And comparing that to the high production values now, I mean they it sounds like the Doctor Who production values were similar to Dark Shadows where props would fall over and walls would collapse and I remember one um Dark Shadows where someone was coughing off stage. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, if you think about it
1: now, there's probably stuff that has higher production value on YouTube than
0: yes. some of the shows, and probably more sophisticated special effects. This is true. This is true. What you could do on your own with your own camera—never mind movie camera. Is, oh yeah, yeah. So, from dark shadows, and you're um, up in the northern part where it's cold and dark sometimes of the year. Uh, where did you go from there, or did did you? When did you decide you were going to write about vampires?
1: Well, the very first story that I ever wrote, I wrote when I was five, and I I had to get my grandmother to write it down because I couldn't spell yet, and it was about a vampire. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, and then when I was on vacation with my family up in the Adirondack Mountains in New York, uh, I ended up buying a book of regional ghost stories, and they were just the someone had collected all the oral traditions and written them down for that region. And I read that book until the cover fell off. I mean, I was just absolutely captivated. And so it really started me on on what's been a lifelong uh, fascination with collections of people's experiences with ghosts and paranormal phenomenon. And so I I still absolutely love reading those kinds of books. And, you know, I'm I'm a sucker for things on TV like Ghost Hunters and Paranormal State. Um, Yeah, I've just always loved that.
0: You know, that's another thing we share, because any time that I travel and I go to the regional section of a bookstore, I always look for the local Uh, ghost stories Mm -hmm. and tales and legends. Oh, they're wonderful. And and even though there
1: are, you know, some some similarities and some overlaps, um, there's just this hint in there of something that someone couldn't explain. And I think that's what keeps me hooked. And then when I was in elementary school and, and, well, we called it junior high school back then. They call it middle school now. Um, I would often have some you know, time after school before my mom could pick me up to take me home. And about a block away from my school was this big old cemetery. And it was over a 100 years old. It had absolutely gorgeous trees. And and in the late spring, uh, rhododendron and azalea that were just tree-like. They were so old and huge. And it had this fascinating range of headstones from some people who were from the revolutionary times all through the history of the city. And I would just go up there and wander around and make up stories about the people whose headstones I was reading, because there are all these tantalizing clues on old headstones where there'll be a phrase of something or there'll be a comment about something and you just wonder who was this person? You know, this this person lived and died and had a favorite meal and uh, you know sang songs and and had a favorite color and and now all we've got is this stone. And I I've all I was just absolutely fascinated with the idea of wanting to know all of their stories. And I would I would wander up there and. I never thought of it as being spooky or scary or morbid. I thought like hundreds of stories that were reaching out to be told. And so, you know, you put that together, you get dark shadows, you got a fondness for ghost stories. And then I was allowed to wander for hours in the cemetery. You know, it it was just fated, I guess, that I ended up writing about vampires.
0: Right, right, yes. Um, That's funny, I live in, in you know new england same thing a lot of the range of the different um time periods and one of the things i'm a big fan of true blood you know i've read the Charlene harris books at least most of them and i'm also a fan of the tv series series and one of the things that i thought was really touching was when the character bill when Sookie's grandmother realized, you were alive during the Civil War. Can you come talk to our historical society? And it's just like, oh, wow, that is so cool. You know, talk about living history.
1: Oh, and I mean, New England cemeteries are especially fascinating. When I would go on vacation with my family, um, and I was an only child, so they indulged me on some of these things, um... If I knew we were passing by a historic cemetery, mm-hmm. that became a stop on the <laughs> oh, wow! because I wanted to go see, you know, some famous person's headstone or some cemetery that dated back to the 1600s. And uh, New England is wonderful for that.
0: Yes, definitely. Now, speaking of historical times, what is the historical time period in which your novels are set? Now, the first one, I believe, was called, wasn't that? The oh, The Summoner. The Summoner, the the Summoner. Mm-hmm. right. And so.
1: then the, the Blood King is the second, and then Dark Haven, that came out in February of 2009, is the third. Uh, the fourth book, Dark Ladies Chosen, will come out in February of 2010, and I'm already working on the next ones. Wow. Um Yes, so it's like, it's like I just turned in the manuscript for Dark Ladies Chosen last week, so it's, it's in production. Uh, but the time period for the Winter Kingdoms is roughly analogous to our late 1400s in Western Europe. Now, it's not Western Europe per se, it's uh, an alternative reality, but that's basically it from a technological standpoint, and I said it at that point because I wanted to set the books at a time before the widespread uh, adoption of gunpowder in Europe. So, you know, to me, once you introduce gunpowder, it takes a lot of the mystique and the romance out of it, uh, as well as it completely changes the rules of war, and it becomes much less personal, and you're able to do much more of the war from a distance. And I wanted to be set still firmly in the era of sword fighting. Mm -hmm. So we've got swords and trebuchets and catapults, but we don't have gunpowder.
0: Although we've got magic, which is wonderful for blowing things up too. (laughs) This is true. Yes, yes. So yours is, now I, I don't mean to be insulting, but would someone say it was, if it didn't have the vampires, would it be considered swords and sorcery? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Swords and
1: Sorcery. I've also had it called Big Fat Fantasy because each book is basically the dimensions of a brick. Uh, <laughs> um, but, oh, yeah, you've, you've got swordplay and you've got vampires and shapeshifters and uh, magic and, um, you know, all, for me, that's, that's the makings of A Good Afternoon Curled Up with a Book. Yes. And and. And a very complex world that we get more and more familiar with as the books go on. For me as an author, that's really part of the fun, is that even in a 600-page book, I can't introduce you to my whole world in one book. So as the books go on, you get to see more and more of the Winter Kingdoms. For example, in The Summoner and the Blood King, you only get... Most of the books are set in Margolin and, and Principality. You get a little glimpse of Isencroft, which is another kingdom, but you, that's, you really get to see two kingdoms approach to things. As the books go on in Dark Haven and Dark Lady's Chosen, we get to see how things work in other places and how the differences are. And just like in our own world, uh, it, location and history and climate and, and background make a huge difference. And so you start to get more of a sense of place uh, and how that varies. So for me, that that's a lot of the fun of gradually revealing uh, the world as the books move forward.
0: Now, your vampires, mm-hmm. are, given your strong dark shadows influence, <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about their mythos, like uh, Can They Walk in Sunlight?
1: No, they can't. Um, in, in my books they're the Vaishmaru. Maru, uh, they are vampires. They are brought across in the traditional way where someone has, with intent, bitten them and exchanged blood. So uh, getting eaten by a vampire doesn't turn you, turn you into a vampire. Getting intentionally bitten and having that blood exchange does. They have some of the traditional limitations in terms of not being able to be about in sunlight, but because we do have an alternative world here where none of the existing religions from our real world are operative or have ever existed, then none of the, the things that a vampire hunter or a vampire opponent would use in our world, like crosses or stakes of a particular kind of wood or holy water, water
0: right. <laughs> works.
1: They don't exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, a dogwood steak is no better than an oak steak because it has nothing to do with the wood of the cross, you know. Right. And my Ashmaru are not evil simply by nature of the fact that they are vampires. I don't happen to think that being dead makes you a bad person. So you have the same moral choices after death that you had before death. If mm-hmm. you were completely self-centered, amoral jerk before you died, you'll probably be the same way after you your debt. Um, you know, if you were a nice person <laughs> on one side of the line, you'll probably, you know, retain that, in the, you know, as, as an undead. That comes into play with what we progressively get to see as a more and more complex uh, Maru subculture because people are not necessarily one way or the other and they have, as many conflicting motives as they did before they were dead.
0: Now, that's interesting. Mine, you know the old saying that power corrupts. Mm -hmm. Well, in my mind, my vampires have absolute power, so they are corrupted absolutely. But it's similar to what you say, what they were in life. If you were a saint in life, you're not going to suddenly become evil overnight. You Mm -hmm. may over time, you know, a couple of thousand years of being able to have your own way. I I keep thinking of, they say, that some of these aristocracies, just because of generation after generation of knowing that you were outside the law and you could always buy off any indiscretion, made people lose their fear of acting against society. Mm -hmm. Now, are your vampires also completely immortal and you know not harmed by diseases and old age and the like they they are immortal in terms
1: of disease and old age but it is possible to get to the point where you decide that you no longer want to exist and basically walk out into the sunlight right. or choose to be destroyed one of the operative plot elements in Darkhaven and Dark Ladies Chosen is you have a, a split between some of the Vyashmaru aristocracy, especially those on the ruling council, who aren't real happy about having a new mortal lord for Darkhaven, which is an area that has been a historic sanctuary, place of refuge for uh, those with the dark gift, at a time when there's a tremendous amount of turmoil going on in the, seven, in, the, um, in the Winter Kingdoms. This is causing the fabric of society in Darkhaven to come apart as well, because you've got several factions of Aishmaru uh, who are out to remake things in their own terms.
0: So I take it that the general population, then, is aware of the vampires and the hierarchy and everything?
1: In my books, magic is operative, and nobody doubts its existence. Mm-hmm. And ghosts are also completely within the realm of the well-understood reality. Now, for most people, ghosts can only be seen at certain times of the year uh, when the, you know, the veil is, is thin between the, the living and the dead. For my main character, Tris Drake, who is a summoner, he has a magical ability to see the ghosts and summon them and interact with them at any time. But the Vaishmaru are well known, well understood, accepted to be real, but tolerated to different amounts in different places. So in some places, there's kind of a live-and-let-live live approach. In other places, there, is, there has been historic persecution and genocide. In Darkhaven, it's been a refuge that was set aside along with the creation of a truce, to end the violence between the mortals and the undead, so especially in in Darkhaven, you may have somebody who comes from a family that you know, maybe their family farms and they become you know someone brings them over to become Vauru they may go back and stay with their family as an accepted part of the family, as an accepted part of the village, helping with the farm, watching over the mortals, at least for several generations until their ties have really all kind of dissipated over time. Yeah, you know, two or three generations down the road, you know, nobody, that the human bond there may be very different than it was for the people who were alive during your human lifetime, but I wanted to play with that concept of what happens if death and undeath really don't cause an end, mm-hmm. and, you know, what happens if this just becomes a whole new twist on the extended family.
0: Ah, right, extended over time, just not over area.
1: Yeah, with, with the ghosts as well as with the Vyashmaru.
0: Mm -hmm. oh so they they don't have to now for them to live with their family like that i'm going to assume that they don't have to feed to the death and how often do they have to feed and is the feed like an addiction or is it just a natural oh i guess i better have something to drink
1: they can get by for quite some time on animal blood Mm -hmm. so you know if you have a nice herd of goats out there Yep. That can keep someone quite a long time. Now, they may need periodically to feed from humans, but the culture has evolved in a way that in many cases, if a village had a murderer or a child molester, some, somebody who really was worthy of death, they would stake them outside the village gate and basically offer them to the Vyashmaru to be killed. Uh-huh. It, nothing goes to waste. Right. Yeah. So there are ways to make a human kill that would be societally sanctioned without having to become a vigilante and decide for yourself who's worth living and who nobody would miss.
0: Right. We've already heard you said you've got three books out and a fourth one has gone to the editor and you've got another, a fifth one coming out next year. Well, the fourth one is coming out in 2010. Oh, it's the fourth
1: one. So it's the fifth and sixth books that I'm I'm working on outlining and getting started on writing right
0: now. So there will be more after this. That's definitely the plan. Now, one thing that interested me, I saw an interview with J.K. Rowling and she said that she had the complete arc for her books all seven books written before she even wrote the first book she knew not only where each book would end but where the whole story arc for the whole series was going and it just made me wonder I don't think many people do that I know I've got a vague idea what I want to cover and how long I want to go but how have you approached a series do you just write each one as they come or do you have an idea for the end
1: well I have the life stories of my main characters pretty clearly in mind. So I know I know their future. Mm-hmm. But as far as the book that I plan to set in the Winter Kingdoms go, this set of characters, this story arc is just one story, you know, and it's kind of like if you're, if you're filming something with a video camera, your attention at the time you're filming is on what's directly in front of your lens, but something really cool could be happening behind your back and you don't get it on tape because you're facing the other direction with the camera or something really interesting could be happening in China, but you're not going to pick it up on this particular videotape. Well, that's the way I see my world of the Winter Kingdoms we're following this particular story right now but that doesn't mean that in one of the other kingdoms either you know later or earlier or even at a, contemporarily there's not some other really fascinating, unrelated story going on, begging to be told. Right. So it really, to me, is a multifaceted, complex, populated world that has as many potential stories in it as our real world. Mm-hmm. And some of them have to do with the characters I've introduced so far. Some of them are completely unrelated, uh, or may happen at completely different times. Right. And, and that's the nature of our world all the time. That's what that what's What sells newspapers is that it's not just what's happening on your street, it's what's happening in the next town, in the next state, in the next country, and on the other side of the world.
0: That's right. Well, I understand that we'll have a reading from you that we'll put in a separate episode, and Mm -hmm. do you know yet which one it's going to be? I don't yet. I have a couple of
1: things in mind, but I've been traveling heavily for the book. I have to actually <laughs> kind of plan in one place long enough to think this through. But I, I will be getting something to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share that with your listeners.
0: Good. That will be a nice surprise for us. And speaking of traveling, are there any major conventions or appearances you're going to be making over this summer of 2009?
1: I've got a pretty active schedule. I'll be doing RavenCon in Richmond, Virginia at the end of April and Balticon in uh, Maryland in May and then Con Carolinas here in Charlotte in early June. Take a little bit of a break over the summer and then in early September, I'll be at DragonCon down in Georgia. And later in September, I will be at Fantasy Con in Nottingham, England, which I'm really Mm -hmm. excited about. That's going to be a a really interesting trip. And I'm a guest of honor for Fantasy Con, so that's kind of cool. And then uh, late in October, not only will I have my Days of the Dead blog tour, but I'll also be appearing at the Carolina's Renaissance Festival. And, of course, on June 21st, as always, I'll be doing my online Hawthorne Moon event, which is where you can get all the sneak peek for book four Uh, which won't come out until January of 2010. So lots coming up, both
0: live and virtually. Speaking of virtually, you also have your own podcast. Tell us a little about that. Sure. I do the Ghost in the Machine podcast, and you can
1: find that on iTunes and on my Chronicles of the Necromancer.com site, but I've also just relaunched a homepage for the podcast, and it's at www.ghostinthemachinepodcast.com. You know, this has been a fun thing for me because I meet a lot of authors and people involved with fandom at the conventions, and wanted to continue some of those conversations in a format that other people could listen in. Some of the fun people that I get to meet, I enjoy introducing to other people, both through the video blogs that I do and post uh, at my convention appearances, and then through the podcast. So I post interviews with two different authors
0: every month, and uh, we just have a good time. Yeah, I noticed recently you had Jonathan Maybury on. Yes, Mm mm-hmm. And I've met him at a couple of conventions myself, and he writes some nonfiction about vampires. I don't think he hasn't done any fiction on vampires, has he? He writes an
1: array of fiction, but he is very well grounded in the nonfiction, mythological, legend background of all things paranormal. So he was a lot of
0: fun to have on, on the podcast. Yeah. And who's coming up next on your podcast?
1: Well, uh, in April, I've got Jerry Smith-Ready, who has Wicked Game, which is another fun twist on vampires, and her new one, uh, Bad to the Bone. And then Jana Oliver, who has a new book out as well. So they're both, again, people that I
0: know from the convention circuit,
1: and we just had a good time talking about our book.
0: I just want to say it's been great talking to you. I'm looking forward to your reading, whatever it is. And I wish you the best of luck with your books.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being on the show, and uh, great to talk with you. Thank you so much.
0: For book updates, tour information, and contact details, visit www.chroniclesofthenecromancer.com. Gail is also the host of the Ghost in the Machine Fantasy Podcast, and you can find her on MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is copyright 2009 Morphin Westfield, but it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details.